Hey everybody, welcome to A Different Church Podcast. My name is Jarrett, and I am excited to welcome you to an awesome message today. Uh, I am recording this on Sunday night. We just had our, I believe, fourth service back after the COVID lockdowns, and today was a really cool day. Uh, We had a, uh, a fun crowd, the message was awesome, the band was really good. Big shout out to Will, he actually shared an original song with us today. And I don't have it for the podcast, but if you keep an eye on our social media accounts this week, I will almost certainly give it a share. It is a really great song. It's called Pull Me Through. And uh, Will is awesome. In fact, our whole band is awesome. I just want to give a shout out to the band. Thank you so much for just being amazing uh, ever since we've been back to doing services. Um, You guys are all super talented and we are very lucky to have you. Okay, on to the announcement portion of the podcast intro. My main announcement is that there are no announcements. We are never, ever doing announcements again because we can never do anything. Just kidding. (laughs) I mean, kind of just kidding. We're not doing much. But I do have a few announcements. Uh, Number one, if you would like, make your way over to diff.church and sign up for our mailing list. That is a really good way to stay informed. Things are fluid right now with the COVID situation. Uh, depending on how things go at any moment, you know, we, we could have to cancel services. And you might not see every social media post we make. So following or being on our mailing list is a really good way to make sure you don't miss any updates. Uh, also, you can give from there or you can just su- uh, shoot us some feedback. Let us know what we're doing that you really love, what you'd like to see more of all that type of stuff. We would just really love to hear from you and to connect with you. Also, we are doing a super chill book club. What that means is we are reading a book called Why Would Anybody Go to Church? It's by Kevin Makins. And we're doing a chapter a week and the chapters are around 15 pages. So it'll be a really quick and easy read. And we're not actually meeting in person. We're going to do all the discussion on uh, a private Facebook group. So if you want to be a part of it, uh, shoot us a DM on social media or email us hello at diffchurch.com and we will put you in the group and you can join our super chill book club. We're going to um, start two weeks from recording date, which let me look at my calendar here. Um, The 17th, we'll start reading on the 17th. So that gives you two weeks from today or from now or whenever you're reading this or reading listening to this you have two weeks to get your your copy unless you're listening to this a week from now and then you have a week so man time is weird on podcasts <laughs> anyway that's my big announcement uh we do have one more announcement which is even cooler than the super chill book club and i will let hannah handle that uh thank you so much for listening today i'm calling this podcast episode too many gods And that brings me to another important announcement. This person that will be coming to join Different Church in December, we officially found out that it's a girl. I'm pretty excited. Not just because I like pink. Because boys are gross. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm not trying to start a fight here. So, everybody, buckle up. We're going to the Old Testament today. I feel like... (laughs) If you grew up in church, specifically the evangelical church, you will have perhaps listened to, in the car with your parents, a radio program called Adventures in Odyssey. 
And they, and they would be like, buckle up, kids. We're going on a Bible adventure. So that's what we're doing. In my opinion, the Old Testament is way more fun than the New Testament. Stick with me. I know that the Christian church is obsessed with the New Testament. I mean, that is where Jesus is. And Jesus is kind of the point of everything we do. So I get it. It's not a bad thing that we are obsessed with the New Testament. But we've also been generally afraid of the Old Testament, I think. So aside from like gleaning some generally benign moral lessons from it, we typically avoid it, except for a few key verses. Like we have some main stories. We have David and Goliath. Everybody knows that. We have Noah's Ark. Everybody knows that one. We have Jonah and the whale, even though it wasn't a whale, it was a fish, so we already got that one wrong. Uh, we have, of course, the seven days of creation, which spawn endless debate. So even like the, the basic main stories that we have, we can't really agree on. And we take a few verses here and there. We're like, oh yeah, Jeremiah 29. I know the plans I have for you, to prosper you and not to harm you. And we're like, yes, amen. But you know, we don't read the rest of Jeremiah, which is like 100% doom and gloom. So we just like barely scratch the surface of the Old Testament because it's super intimidating. <laughs> um, if you've ever read the Old Testament and then like quit reading the Old Testament, probably because either it was terrifying, very confusing, or just really boring in certain parts. There, I mean, it was written thousands of years ago, first of all. It's written in a different language. It's founded in history we know almost nothing about. And like at least the New Testament is in a tiny period of time. And I don't think we think about this very often. The New Testament was written in the hundred years or so after Jesus' birth. It's not very long. That would be like the New Testament being written from the roaring 20s to now. We can historically pinpoint things that happened there. We generally understand the format. There's like narratives and there's letters and that's it. There's just narratives and letters, except for Revelation, which is, I mean, it's its own class. If you've ever tried to read Revelation. Revelation, I mean, almost didn't make it into the Bible in the first place, so there's that. But also, it's very much an Old Testament book. It doesn't fit with the New Testament. So 100 years for the New Testament. The Old Testament is set over a huge span of time, like from the beginning to about 400 years before Jesus was born. How many years is that? A lot. A lot of years, not a hundred. Now, it's also not written in a very nice or easy to understand format. It's not just narratives and letters. Now, there are narratives, but there's also mythicized history, actual history, multiple versions of history, some of which contradict each other. We all know David and Goliath. David killed Goliath, except that there's another part in the Bible that says David didn't kill the Goliath. It was somewhere else, someone else. So we've got all this history. There's poetry, there's songs, there's apocalyptic literature, kind of like Revelation. There is law, which of course everyone loves to read a law book. Except that there's multiple versions of the same law that actually say different things about the thing that they're controlling. There is parts of the Old Testament that are written like fairy tales. A prime example of that is Jonah. And we're not going to get into Jonah today. I promise we will at some point. But we generally take Jonah as like, 
the gospel truth. Jonah swallowed by a whale or a fish. Except that the language in Jonah doesn't lend itself to be interpreted literally. Everything in Jonah is huge. The word huge is used like a million times. The city is huge, the whale is huge, the storm is huge, um, Jonah's disobedience is huge, Nineveh is huge. It says it takes like three days for him to walk across it, where historically that would have been like maybe an hour. <laughs> so like everything is huge and blown out of proportion in Jonah. Then we have prophecy, lots of prophecy, and tons of little stories that either have no apparent moral meaning, or we're just confused by them in general, or they're like really awful about terrible things happening to people, and we're like, we're gonna just skip those parts. Just not gonna talk about that part of the Bible, because we don't know, God seems like a terrible person there, or why wouldn't God do something here? So, the Old Testament is just a lot. It's just a lot to handle. Essentially, it is a story of humans coming to try to understand God over a long period of time, and mostly getting it wrong. Um, which is where we are. <laughs> and I think that we are more Old Testament people than we are New Testament people. And by that, I don't mean we don't live in a world that has experienced Jesus. Obviously, we live in a world that has experienced Jesus. That's changed everything. But the New Testament writers and the New Testament Christians, they were in 100 years. They were literally, their whole purpose was like based on Jesus is going to come back any second. When was the last time you thought about Jesus coming back? <laughs> is that like on your mind, first thing, when you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh my gosh, today could be the day. We could have, I mean, maybe if you grew up in like your church taught the rapture, or you read the Left Behind books, which, Revelation, fan fiction. Okay, don't take that as the gospel truth. Like, we don't think about the second coming of Jesus. I can't even tell you the last time I thought about it. Which, I mean, this is, this is my life. So if I'm not thinking about it, I expect most other people aren't as well. We are Old Testament people in the span of time that we have had. We've had 2,000 years since Jesus, 1,900 years since the New Testament was done being written, to come to try to understand more about God and mostly get it wrong, just like the Old Testament people. All of that to say, the Old Testament is fantastic and we should spend more time there. But one of the reasons that we, especially evangelical church culture, does not like to spend time in the Old Testament is because it will very quickly mess up any perfect notions of God and the Bible that you have put in your tiny God box that just makes perfect sense all the time. And like, it's not gonna work if you really dive into the Old Testament. There's so many questions surrounding things in the Old Testament. We just don't have good answers for them. We have contradictions, we have omissions, we have different perspectives on the same thing. We have different laws about the same thing. We have very deep questions about authorship. Like typically, people will be like, well, who wrote the first five books of the Bible? Moses. Probably not. <laughs> but like we all know that, right? The first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Moses wrote them, it says Moses wrote them, and the Bible is clear. And that's just what we like to say. The Bible is clear, the plain reading of the text. <laughs> but if you really start studying the Old Testament, you can't exist in that space. You have to exist in a space where history may not match with what you're reading. And then you have to ask the question, not did this literally happen, but why was this preserved? What did this mean to the people? So that was a very long introduction <laughs> to 
to a very short Old Testament passage that we are going to talk about today. In Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 8, there's only three verses. Y'all can handle this. So we're going to read it together, and then we'll break it down. Or, as one of the things that pastors say that I hate the most, let's unpack this. <laughs> like we're coming back from a trip. Let's unpack this. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let them proclaim it. Let them step forward and prove their power. Who has announced from ancient times the things to come? Let them tell us what is yet to be. Do not fear or be afraid. Did I not proclaim my purposes for you long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any other God besides me? There is no rock. I know not one. Now, I feel like if you read this with enough passion, everyone's going to be like, yeah, even if we have no idea what God is saying here. We'll just be like, it sounds good. God's like, I am the king of Israel. And we're like, yeah, this sounds great. This three-verse section is one of several other passages focused on critiquing idols, focused on critiquing the worship of other gods in 2nd Isaiah. Now, 2nd Isaiah is like second breakfast. <laughs> it's very cool, but not very many people know about it. We, this is one of the things about the Old Testament. So Isaiah is a book of prophecy. It's a very long book of prophecy in the Old Testament. We typically assume the entire thing was written by a guy named Isaiah because it has his name on it, which is not false. A good chunk of Isaiah was written by Isaiah. But starting in chapter 40 and going to the end of the book, chapter 66, there's just a completely different writing style. Like there's no way that Isaiah wrote it. And most scholars believe that those chapters did not come from Isaiah, but actually his students, his disciples. So they were written much later than the original 40 chapters. So if you keep it straight, Isaiah is split into 1st Isaiah and 2nd Isaiah, and sometimes 3rd Isaiah if you want to get really nitty-gritty, but we don't need to go that far. And all of it is lumped under the title of Isaiah, which makes it clear as mud for anyone expecting to learn anything. And now that you know that, you don't even need to go to seminary. You can just walk out of here and be like, yes, I know about 2nd Isaiah. And then when you leave, you can have second breakfast. So essentially, these three verses are like a court case between Yahweh, who is God in the Old Testament, that is Yahweh's, that is Yahweh's name. <sighs> That's God's name. God's name is Yahweh in the Old Testament. And wherever you see in the Old Testament, Lord in capital letters, that is the divine name. So you can read Yahweh. And in this court case, Yahweh is defending himself against the other deities of the realm and making a case for his church people to still follow him. So two things. Why would it be necessary, first of all, for Yahweh to defend himself against anybody? It's the king of the planet and the universe, right? And what do we mean by other deities? So if we think about ancient history, the countries who are the most powerful always ascribed their success to their gods. This is common. Everyone in history agrees to this. So like the Romans did it, the Greeks did it, 
The Egyptians did it, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, literally every single culture in the ancient Near East did it. If you won, that means your gods were more powerful than the other gods. If you lost, that either meant your gods were less powerful or your god was mad at you. For some reason, hopefully you knew it, mostly you didn't, you just had hope that you could make your god not mad at you so that then you could win again. Well, what happened to Israel? They lost. Not only did they lose, they got annihilated by the Babylonians. Their Jerusalem was burned down, the palace was burned down, the temple was burned down. Half of, like, almost all of their, like, bright, young, promising people were carted off to Babylon. And so there's just some random people left, like the people who were too sick, the people who the Babylonians thought were too dumb, like the people who were too old. Babylon was like, we don't need those people. We want to take your best and brightest and get them out so that you have nothing to rebuild with. You can't rebuild with a bunch of old people and kids. Little did they know. But, I mean, they lost. So what does that mean? That Yahweh lost. Yahweh is not as powerful as the Babylonian gods because they prayed for Yahweh to help them and clearly nothing happened except utter destruction. So Yahweh actually has to defend himself. And you'll notice I'm using he because the language in this passage is masculine and there's this very like masculine warrior presence that Yahweh is portraying here. So Yahweh has to defend himself against the other gods who look like they've won and justify himself to his followers who are like, all is lost, there is no hope. Now, what do we mean by other deities? So it's well established in history, right? I think we can all agree to this. People believed in various gods throughout history. That's not like a bone of contention, right? There are gods and people believed in them. But we have tended to apply our own personal monotheism that we have, like currently, retroactively to the Bible. So we're like, we believe in one God only, and this God is the only God that exists. That's what we mean when we say monotheism. So we just assume then that we read that into the Bible, that the Israelites were monotheists from the start. They believed that Yahweh was the only God and that no other gods existed. But in my opinion, this is not supported in the Bible. <laughs> I have argued in past research that the Israelites were not firmly monotheistic until after the Babylonian exile. Um, if you wanna dive down like a massive rabbit hole of research and open up an Old Testament can of worms, just research. When did the Israelites become monotheistic? I think it was after the exile but some people think it was before. Most people don't think it was from the beginning. But there's a difference between monotheism, this God is the only God that exists, which is what we would say, and monolatry, which is this God is the only God worth worshiping. But there are other gods. And the Israelites did not deny the existence of other gods. In fact, Yahweh, when Yahweh talks in the Old Testament, a lot of times there's no denial of the existence of other gods. In fact, the Israelites many times get in trouble in the Old Testament for running off to worship the other gods. So if they didn't think they existed, then what are they doing with their lives? 
They're like, oh, Yahweh failed. I'm going to go worship Baal. Like repeatedly. Yahweh, I don't like anymore. I'm going to go worship Asherah. Yahweh failed. Yahweh was mean to me. I'm sad. I'm going to go worship all these other gods because maybe they'll help me as well. Maybe they'll make my crops grow. Might as well just worship all the gods and just cover all my bases. So I don't think the Israelites would have done that if they really thought that God, Yahweh, was the only one that existed. So in this passage, when we say Yahweh is defending himself against other gods, it's because the people believed there were other gods. Otherwise, this makes no sense. And not only did they believe there were other gods, it appeared as though all of these other gods were more powerful than Yahweh. So let's read the verses together one more time, and we'll just do it one verse at a time. Verse 6 says, thus says the Lord, and I made these slides while pregnant. So um, where it says, thus says the Lord <laughs> in lowercase letters, it should be capital letters because that's Yahweh's name. Thus says Yahweh, the divine name. The Lord in the top line is different than the Lord in the second line. Only the divine name is used in the first line. Thus says the Lord, the king of Israel. Now, we just breeze right past that. Yes, Yahweh, king of Israel. Okay, there was no Israel. What are you king of? Your kingdom has been destroyed. There is no hope. We already covered this. Your temple was burned down. The city was burned down. Everybody's gone. There is no Israel to be king of. Your king was literally killed. And, or his eyes gouged out and he was dragged off to Babylon. I can't remember which king reigned at that time, but one of those things happened to them, both terrible. But here God is saying the monarchy actually has survived because I am the true king. You think that Israel has no king anymore and has no future, but actually the Babylonians didn't defeat anybody. You still have a king. The redeemer, the person who will fix this situation, and the Lord of hosts, which essentially means head of the army, what army? <laughs> the army that lost? The army that is now either dead or carted off to Babylon? Yes. So thus says Yahweh, the king of a country that still exists, even though it looks like it doesn't, the person who will fix this situation, and the leader of your armies. I am the first and the last. I was there when time began, and I will be there when time ends. Besides me, there is no God. Now, that's not saying there is no God that exists. It's saying, besides me, no other God can say that they were there at the beginning because they weren't. No other God can say that they were going to be there at the end because I will outlast them. They will not make it as long as I make it. I was God in Egypt before Israel was even a nation. Before you were even a people, I was God of Israel, king of Israel. So don't think that this is the end. Verse 7, who is like me? Let them proclaim it. Let them prove it. Who has announced from ancient times the things to come? Let them tell us what is yet to be. So Yahweh is challenging these other gods. So the Babylonian gods appear that they have won, but they weren't there from the beginning and they haven't predicted the future. Prove it. Of course, in this trial, none of the other gods showed up, so they've lost by default. There is no response from them. Do not fear or be afraid. Did I not proclaim my purposes for you long ago? You are my witnesses. 
So here Yahweh is addressing the people that remain. They're devastated, they're demoralized, they're questioning. They're like, maybe I should worship the Babylonian gods. I don't know if this is even worth it anymore. And Yahweh says, don't be afraid. Haven't I told you from the beginning what would happen? Have I lied? Which none of the witnesses can deny, even though this is a really difficult charge. Because what do the first 40 chapters of Isaiah say? Babylon is coming. You will think this is the end, but it will, it will not be the end. Babylon is coming. Israel will be destroyed, but it will not be completely destroyed. And all of the people listening to this, no one can deny that what God said happened. No one can be like, you didn't tell me about this. I was unprepared, okay? No one can say that. All of the witnesses are like, well, actually, I didn't want to believe you because that was bad news bears. And it was terrible. And I didn't want to think that anything bad would happen to me because I believe in Jesus. And that's just not how life works. But obviously this horrible thing happened to them and none of them can deny that God said, this is coming and I am warning you in advance, prepare yourself. Is there any other God besides me? There is no rock. I know not one. So he's like resting his case. Is there another God who told you what was coming and was honest? Or did you believe in someone who said everything will be perfect all the time? All your problems will always be taken care of. You will never have struggles. No. Not no other God exists. No other God compares. No other God, and I think this is a really difficult truth for us to accept sometimes, no other God has been honest with you about what will happen in the world. And we might think that these are kind of, this is kind of harsh. Everything sucks already. And Yahweh's like, yep, told you. <laughs> I told you it was gonna suck, and guess what, it sucks. And all the people are like, oh, thank you. That was a great pep talk. But actually, because we can read these short verses and fly right past them, but the meaning to the hearers was so significant because in just three paragraphs, God is reminding them. So listen to this interpretation. Like this is what a hearer at this time, hearing this from God, from God's mouth would have thought. Yahweh is reminding the suffering people of a story that they forgot. A story about runaway slaves from Egypt. A story about freedom. A story about Moses and the 10 words of life given to Moses. Of Miriam's song that they sang on the other side of the Sea of Reeds, a song about freedom and life and escape from their oppressors. Yahweh is telling them to listen and live. The Exodus is coming. The Holy One who created the heavens is not incapable of revising any human regime and bringing homesick people home, even when it looks completely hopeless. Yahweh is reminding them who they are, but not just who they are, whose they are. Because once they were nobody, they were nothing. They were slaves in Egypt. They were the lowest people on the ladder. 
They had no rights, they had no home, they had no freedom, they had no future. But now they are somebody. They are God's people. God is with them. And the revelation of God's presence to them that God has been promising from the beginning isn't even just for them, it's for the whole world to see through them. Yahweh is the first and the last. He was there when time began and he will be there far beyond all of these other gods. And if that's true, then God will make a way where there doesn't seem to be any way. No matter how far away from home they are, God will pull them back. God will gather them up and make a pathway home for them through the desert. Yahweh goes to great lengths to win this argument because it's an act of liberation. Who can predict the things to come? Not all those other gods. They couldn't have predicted that they would win. But I, Yahweh, told you this would happen because I am the first and the last. And are there heartbroken people in Egypt who need to be reminded that God can do this again? Are there heartbroken people in Babylon who need to be reminded that what God did in Egypt, God can do again? Are there heartbroken people perhaps now who need to be reminded that even when it looks bleak, Yahweh is the king. Yahweh is the Lord. Yahweh is the one who fixes the situation. Yahweh is the one who is Lord over the army that you can't even see that is fighting on your behalf. Do we need to be reminded that God has redeemed us in the past and can do that again? Not even can do, will do? You are the witness. That's what it's saying. And I think that's just as powerful as like thousands of years ago when it was written. I mean, obviously we have not been marched off to another country, but it can look like things are pretty bleak. But hasn't God told us in this world you will have trouble? And we're like, not that part of the Bible. That part sucks. Skip it. I would like everything to be perfect all the time. Thank you. And I would, let me tell you. But that's not how the world works. God says, in this world you will have trouble, but don't be afraid. I am the first and last. I am the beginning and the end. This is not the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is not what you see here in the physical realm. It's what's happening in the spiritual realm, in heaven. And this is but a blip on the map, as important as it seems to you right now. There is a place where the kingdom of God reigns eternal. Trust your life to the rock, the redeemer, the only God worth worshiping. Listen and live. No matter how bleak it seems right now, Yahweh will redeem you again. Let's pray. God, perhaps we don't know how to ask, but we need to be redeemed again. Perhaps we need to realize that salvation is not a once and forever thing, even though it is. It's not only a once and forever thing. It is 
an every morning thing. It's an every moment thing where you take our despair and you say, actually, there's hope. Where you turn things that we can't see a way out of and you say, I am the first and the last and I won't abandon you. I have never abandoned you. You've never been alone. Give us that assurance in our hearts and our souls. Give us the resolve in our minds that when anything happens, when Babylon comes to take us away, that we say, yet I will trust you. Yet Yahweh is king. Yet God is the first and the last. Give us the resolve to listen and live. Redeem us again and again and again. Amen.